you build centers of the brain which cause you to recruit the focused circuits so that when you go into your day, you're, you're less distractible. You're, you, you won't get distracted like you used to. Hi friends, happy 2023. It is good to be back on the show. I'm excited to introduce you today to my guest who's going to be talking all about high performance and specifically neuroscience-based peak performance training with you. If you are a listener of the podcast and you haven't yet subscribed, please hit the subscribe and notifications button as the bigger the show gets the bigger the guests that we can bring you. And we have some incredible guests lined up for this year. Today, my guest is award-winning author, speaker, and strategist, Jim Steele. He's the author of the book, Unashamedly Superhuman, Harness Your Inner Power and Achieve Your Greatest Professional and Personal Goals. And we're going to be talking all about how you can do that, and specifically the high-performance routines that if you adopt will help to move you forward this year. They're highly practical and highly integratable with your life and you'll also learn about the science behind them. So without further delay, let me introduce you now to Jim Steele. So it's really wonderful, Jim, to have you on the show. We met um, a couple of years back, I think. We were doing some work together back in 2020, mm. at the pretty much at the beginning of lockdown, I think, when everything was still, was very uncertain. Yeah. Uh, and it's awesome to be circling back with you today, just having you know seen and read your new book, Unashamedly Superhuman. So mm. first of all, a very warm welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to this very much. Yeah, I'm really looking forward <laughs> to it. I mean, we were just chatting offline uh, about kind of, how important things like recovery are to performing uh, mm. at your best. But I guess a, guess a, a kind of the best place to start here, I think, is what prompted you to write Unashamedly Superhuman? If I can <laughs> actually get it out, it's <laughs> yeah. quite a difficult one to say, yeah. isn't it? I was yeah, tripping over metabolism earlier, but yeah, yeah unashamedly. And also it's quite provocative, you know, when I when I, mm. when I thought of the, the, the title, Unashamedly Superhuman, I thought, you know, who's... Who's sitting there going, I'm superhuman? No one's saying that. That's ridiculous. You know, we save that label for the rare few that we probably can't relate to. You know, and I thought I, I want to sort of unpack this a little bit and, and find out what is it, what do we have in common that is remarkable? Right. And, and, and I wanted to go beyond the cliches, you know, that I've experienced in, in the corporate sector, certainly for the last 25, 30 years. Things like, you know, we've got to tap potential, we've got to change our mindset, we've got to become more resilient, you know all said with good intentions, but there's no value in those, those, those statements. There's no process in it. There's no strategy. So I wanted to try and demystify some of these things that lean into how we perform, what shows up on, in our day, um, but with, some, with some, some protocols that actually work. You know, how it really started, it was started way before the thought of a book, um, where a client of mine who runs a global team, she said, look, I need, I need some, if you've got any content that pulls together two things, high performance, because our business is driven by performance and well-being. And this was at a time, probably three or four years ago, before well-being was on everyone's mission statement or in their values. Right? No one was talking about it, really. Mm. And, I, and, I, I, and my initial reaction was, I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, I, I, kind, of, I kind of figured you're either full tilt, 100% type A, or you look after yourself. Right? You, you're either one of, one of those two people. Do they go together? So I said, I don't, I don't know. I like the idea, but give me a year. I'll come back to you. And and I genuinely went away thinking, let me try and unpack that. I mean, well, well-being, I'm not, I'm not talking necessarily about self-care as much as I think that's a whole other genre. And I think, it, and, and fortunately it is now within corporate cultures. And so it should be because people get hurt. But, but I, I was, my motivation was specifically well-being to facilitate performance. So high performance was the driver. Um, but how does well-being facilitate that? And so I, I went looking, you know, and, and I thought I need to create a challenge for myself. I got to find some reason to go and, and test some theories and some observations. And I, I wanted to go and look in places that I hadn't looked for 25 years. You know, I've been in the, the, the field of performance psychology for quite some time in the corporate sector, um, but I wanted to I wanted to go a little deeper into the neuroscience and 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 what were the practical strategies that that relate to everybody, not just these rare few that. That we, that we deemed to be superhuman. Um, mm. And, and, and that, that was a motivation for me to try and unpack that. Try and get to, yeah, get to the bottom of it. When mm. we look at potential, um, you talk about this in, in mm. part two of the book, to tapping into your potential. Um, I think it's fair to say that no matter how well we're doing, right, most of us are not trapping, tapping into our true greatest potential. Yeah. 
What do you think is the biggest obstacle to people achieving that? Okay, good question. I mean, what it it isn't first, it's not that we don't have access to potential. And when I when I ask audiences, I ask that question, how much of your potential think you're realizing? I mean, that's a generic question, but what number feels right to you? I don't mean effort. I mean, how much of your potential are you tapping? And I remember I first asked that question, it was not long after we'd spoken, and I was running a webinar to a couple of thousand people, and the numbers came pouring into the chat box, you know, 70, 60, 50, 83. I mean, people get quite specific. Um, What no one ever puts in, ever, is 100. No one ever says 100. Intuitively, everyone deep down believes there's something to be had. Right. Um, and I and just for a bit of fun, I often say to a crowd, you know, I'll give you a physical example. I go, so Stacy, if you put your hand up as high as you can get it, I go as high as you can, show me your best. And they sit like this. And I go, everybody, watch what happens. I go, ready, a bit more, and they all go like that. And I go, I go, where did that come from? It's like you were sitting there going, that's my best, Jim. That's all I got. And I went a bit more, and you went, what, that bit? Everyone holds it back. <laughs> everyone knows there's something to be had. Um but what's elusive is 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 a process. You know, the, the barrier, the barrier, the obstacle is, what do I do with that information? All right. And, and I, I when I went looking, and I, I I came across a few psychologists who had a much more academic take on this than me. Uh, and one of the psychologists said, and, and it was a fascinating um, um, speech that he gave around potential. He said, in order to tap potential, first thing you need is you need some situational stress. You need something that's going to provoke you. Now, whether that's self-selected, like you set a goal or a target or an aspiration, or whether that's, you know, it's forced on us by you know, external circumstances. When you have situational stress, it, your nervous system at least starts working. Little new neural codes happen. You start to explore, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? He said, when you set a, a lofty aspiration where you don't really know how you're going to do it, but you're excited, you make progress, you start prioritizing. At some point, you'll hit a wall, probably, and go, I don't know if I'm good enough. And that's the wall we hit where we're now testing whether there's potential to be tapped. So when you tap, when you hit that wall and you start thinking, well, I got to get better with people, I got to get learn more about this activity, you start to explore ways of getting better. And this whole growth mindset, I suppose, starts to kick in. Um, and then what happens, he said, is you, you start to tap into your, he was saying it was more our potentials locked into our nervous system through our DNA. So he says, all your ancestors is wired into your DNA, which I love the sound of that. He said, but you need situational stress to provoke your brain to start forming these new neural neural pathways. And I thought, well, that makes sense to me. I mean, it's still reasonably elusive, but so their process is right. You've got to set some lofty ambition. You need some situational stress. You've got to have a growth mindset, right? You've got to be able to persevere and persist. Because persistence is the next thing. You know, once I, I, I'm on track to something, how do I persist through the sort of pain barrier? And, and all of these points can get in the way. Some don't have the goal. Some don't have the, the growth mindset. Some don't have the ability to stay with the pro- program, you know. So they're all barriers. But what I try to do is to put it into a format. And I use the, the acronym ADAPT in, the, in that section of the book around tapping potential. Um, and each of the four, the five letters of ADAPT relate to something that explores this strategy for how to get how to get more out of yourself right mm-hmm. um so yeah so i think there are barriers but there, but there's also a process where you can walk through and pass those barriers it's interesting when you look at persistence isn't it because actually like well persistence when you look at um the book think and grow rich mm. it's probably i would say one of the most important chapters in that book mm. um and i think that discipline is ryan holiday talks about that you know discipline is both kind of deterministic of success and es- yeah. and essential to success. Mm. Uh, and yet so many people struggle with it. And I think mm. that um, the best sort of um, comparison I found actually is Stephen Pressfield. He talks uh, a lot in his work around the fact that within us is this insidious force. It's not outside of us. It's actually within us. Yeah. And that is resistance. And that everything that is worth doing, you will encounter resistance um, before you can do it. And so yeah. people kind of, they don't, they almost, some people will have trouble getting started because they kind of rely on motivation or yeah. if they have motivation, they're then waiting for motivation to show up again. So they're not consistent and disciplined with that action. And mm. so they're not persisting in it. And, and generally speaking, most things, if you actually persist over time, I think you can look at like investment in the stock market, for example, if yeah. you persist for a few years, you might have like a 25, 30% success rate. But if you persist beyond 10 years, it goes up to something like 100%. 
But we almost have this internal psyche where we hold ourselves back and we don't necessarily have that belief. How would you say for people listening and they're thinking, God, yeah, actually, I feel that resistance. I do procrastinate. How can they get around this? Two things I would say. So first thing is there has to be a certain belief system in the ability to reach the end goal. Right, because if if I'm leaving home base to achieve something that's I don't quite know how I'm going to do it, as I start to make progress, at some point if, you're right. I, I I may not get the results I was looking for as quickly as I wanted, and if I don't if I don't believe the process is worthwhile, I don't believe I'm actually going to achieve the end goal. It's too tempting to go back. Right, so you retreat back to where you were, um, and that, I guess that's where sort of growth mindset comes in. I read a really interesting article. It's a guy called Robert Keegan. It was a, a Harvard uh, professor, and, and he was talking about performance psychology and saying that there was a belief not that long ago which said something like um, these psychological capabilities like focus, resilience, empathy are pretty much set by the age of 25. That was the belief system. And we could acquire new skills, you know, technical skills, but you couldn't develop those psychological capabilities. And he, and he did this, this long-term study where he turned that on its head because he found there were albeit a, min- a minority of people that did develop those psychological capabilities over time. But there were two things that were consistent that, that they, they, they kind of shared. One was the ability to hold and explore opposing viewpoints. So they weren't fixed in their mindset that this was true. They could hold differing viewpoints about things, right? And the second thing was they were able to define themselves. There was a flexibility in the way they defined themselves. So they could they could kind of shape their identity based on growth rather than based on past results. So if you can do that, if you can shape an identity based on what's possible, what you can do, that in itself keeps you moving forward because you start to you, know, you start to generate dopamine, and when you got dopamine in your system because you're you have an anticipation of something that's going to happen, it keeps you on the front foot, right? And there's a so there's a phrase I often use. Um, and it's, it's it's a simplification. It's a it's like a cognitive reframe where you're trying to reframe the challenge in a way which causes you to move forward. And I use the word adventure, right? It's, it's not new, but I say if you, if you accept the adventure of what you're on, when I say the word adventure, what words come to mind? And people, and I'll ask an audience, what do you think when I say adventure? And they say, you know, exciting, exploration. They'll say risk, danger, the unknown. And I go, yeah, so the word adventure it's not about success or failure, positive, negative. Adventure is just something that you label a way forward. But when you go on an adventure, you psychologically lean in. So if I said we're going on an adventure, you kind of go, what? You, got, you kind of lean towards it. And what's an adventure, right? You don't, you don't get stepped back from an adventure. So I'd say two things. One is frame, frame the challenge. Frame what you're moving towards as something more than just the goal. Like that keeps you move. It kind of keeps a dot on the horizon that that pulls you towards. The second thing I'd say around persistence specifically is this this ability to reward the effort, not just the reward, not just reward the the, the outcome. Right. So you know, if if you're on a if you're if you're running a marathon after mile eight, if you're hurting, thinking about the finish line won't provide motivation. Quite the opposite, frankly. You start to think about mile nine. You think about mile 10, right? You start to, and, and the strategies that you reward the achievement while you're on the path. So the way you get to mile nine, you give yourself a little verbal pat on the back, you know, like, what, good, well done, you, you dug in, you hung in there, stay focused. And by rewarding the efforts, you trip your own dopamine levels, which again, keeps you on the front foot. So persistence is just having a bit of dopamine, a bit of adrenaline maybe, um, but you've got to be able to, like you said earlier on, self-administer. If no mm. one's saying, well done, Right. Well, who, someone's got to say it. So it, the great, a great study that came out of um, some of the special forces training that I was reading about and what they train the special forces to do when they're in difficult situations or they're on, or they're on a, you know, a long term challenge is they train them to trip their own dopamine by self-rewarding. They call thin slice recognition. So you thin slice the task and you reward yourself each step of the way. That's persistence. It, it doesn't have to be this painful thing. Right. It's got to be a rewarding thing. Right. So I think that's a, and I use that a lot, you know, certainly on some of the challenges I set myself, you know, rather than just wait till the end to feel good. You've got to have this feeling of return on investment 
whilst you're in the process of moving forward. That's what keeps you moving forward. That's persistence. So you're right? looking more at like, look how far I've come. I've done so well, as opposed to, oh my God, look how far I've got to go. Like the, yeah. the race that you did, the triathlon is a good example, right? So you're patting yourself on the back. So that yeah. reward then, because I think often people, when they say reward yourself along the way, they're sort of assuming that they have to do something physical, like, yeah. you know, reward themselves with a special experience or a special yeah, treat no. or something. It's yeah, just no, congratulating no, quite, quite yourself effectively. Yeah, quite. Yeah, I, I would say don't reward yourself with a, with a treat. I would say reward just reward psychologically the fact that you put the effort in. So you start to associate, you know, a, a kind of pleasure to some extent for putting in effort. Mm. Right. That's so so you, you, you value that. And, and when you value that, about yourself that I can trust myself to put the effort in you know the the end goal becomes the end goal becomes a, a point of direction you know I want to get to that point and, and you will get dopamine when you achieve it I mean that's you know it's a reward chemical but it's also an anticipation of reward chemical and if you can learn how to manage that you know manage your own dopamine levels that puts you into a small percentage of the population when it comes to self-motivation and drive mm -hmm. you know what you want is the brain chemicals in your system that's what causes the feeling of, of stepping into more challenge you know and you need and you, and you need that challenge to build more resilience to build you know growth uh, and all the things that really when you start to value you can set any goal i mean i, I don't want to get too motivational but whatever the goal is that's a that gives you a direction but you know if, if we just feel satisfied by achieving the goal you know how often do you hear that people who, who achieve goals and they sit there going is that all there is mm. you know and you go yeah because you know you, you motivated yourself you achieved the target but the real value, I think the real value is, is understanding the, 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 the return on, on putting in the time and effort to become what you want to become. Because even if you don't achieve the goal, I remember years ago watching, I think it was the Olympics probably, and there was Zola Budd was a, was a, a South African runner. known for, She was famous for running barefoot. Um, anyway, she, she tripped up one of the favorites. It was an American runner, Mary Decker Slaney. Yeah, if I got that right, that'd be impressive. But who was the favorite to win from the States? Anyway, they kind of had a bit of a tangle. The American fell, and she and she didn't win any medals. And they they interviewed her afterwards, and she was distraught. And and she was really kind of blaming on Zola Bud for tripping her up. And she was saying that she's just ruined my life for four years wasted training for this race, because you know the only value she attached was winning the race. And I, I'm all for that, you know, achieving things you want to achieve. But she she didn't attach any value to the four years that she experienced mm. traveling the world, competing, had an amazing lifestyle. You know, it was almost written off. It's just about that race, you know, and uh, I, think, I think, you know, it's a better model to go, yeah, the race is really important, but I'm not going to devalue the process, you know, the path to, yeah. the, to the end the end goal is I mean, also what, valuable. What's interesting there as well, what you were talking about in terms of that reward mechanism and that dopamine that's, that struck me is a lot of people will say as well, like they don't have the belief ahead of time that they can do it. But as mm. you're rewarding along the way, like using that analogy of the of the race, when you were saying, you know, good on you, well done, you've done that, not you've done nine miles, mm. you can go for the next 10. What you're doing is you're proving uh, sort of ahead of time that you do have capability because yeah. you're acknowledging, well, if I've got this far, I can get that far and that far. So you're only ever then taking the next step, right? And you're building yeah. self-confidence and self-esteem along the way. Yeah, and, and it, it keeps you in the game. I mean, look, you still have to have trained in order to do the, the full marathon. I mean, just just <laughs> yeah, rewarding yourself you doesn't just... mean you, it doesn't mean you get it done, right? So, you, but you, but you, but you, yeah. what you want, what we're talking about here is being you know, tapping the best of us. So, if the best of me happens to be thirteen miles, because that's all the effort I put into training and my nutrition and everything else, well, that you, you're going to find that out. Um, but that, but that's not kind of how people that operate typically. You know, they, they, I think mm. if, if you want to find out really what you're capable of. There's a whole range of things we can do to, to 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 tap into that, but one of them certainly is persistence, as you say, is about rewarding the effort, not just the end goal. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. I think also uh, one thing that struck me in the book there's a there's a picture that you share of two people uh, in in ice. One of them is in an ice bath, mm. and the other one's kind of in icy water. And 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 the guy in the photo, he's very much resisting. You can see visibly <laughs> resisting it, right? Whereas the 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 woman in the ice bath has kind of eased and she's relaxed. She's like becoming. She's with at one with that experience, if you like, yeah. right? And. Yeah. Uh, and what's interesting to me there is 
you know, once you once you kind of align with that, things become so much more effortless. Mm. Uh, we can talk about how people might prepare themselves for a, for a, an ice bath specifically in a moment. But what's the mindset shift there? How do you yeah. stop resisting the challenges that are in your life and lean in, effectively mm. lean into the mountain like you do when you ski? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I like those images too. And the point that I make in there is that the more you can adapt the less you have to endure, right? So he's in the in the ice, but they're both in ice. It's cold. The, the external environment is, let's call it the same. It's challenging, it's difficult. Um, and you've got one person that's just fighting it and really enduring it, right? And, and it's a bit like the last two or three years. Like if you haven't adapted over the last two or three years, this is painful. And it's been an, a painful endurance test. But if you've managed to adapt along the way, it becomes less painful less endurance requires so it's almost like a hydraulic the more you adapt the less you have to endure right so rather than just resisting the environment the, the question is okay well how do i adapt how do i adapt to the challenge well again well i there's a process that i talk to in the book so one accept accept the adventure that's the first thing accept that this is challenging you know i know it's a cognitive reframe but you can either go accept the problem accept the challenge accept the adventure they're just words but the words we use to describe things dramatically affect the way we respond, the way we feel. So once you accept the adventure, well, now you've got to direct your seeking system. You've got to trigger that part of your brain based on what you want, where, you, where you're trying to get to. So the seeking system is a bit like, as a guy, I've been, I found it really messy, funny enough, at London Business School, I've got that, Professor Dan Cable, uh, wrote a couple of great books. One's uh, Alive at Work. Um, and, he, and he talks about activating the seeking system. It's a bit like if you went out and bought a, I don't know, a grey Audi car today, what would you start seeing everywhere for the next few days? Mm. You're not even looking for them, but you just start to see them because this part of the brain, I think he calls it the ventral striatum, suddenly gets activated. So, you know, in terms of you can resist or you can accept the adventure, direct your seeking system to notice the things that you want to pay attention to. Now, once you've directed the seeking system, you then have to start to activate you know, the sort of the, the new and the improved, you've got to get better because you've got to work on development. I've got to use the, the, the ice bath, the problem, the challenge. And this is where I suppose mindset comes in. When you say lean in, I think it's a great definition of mindset. The, the words are used to describe how you lean into things. If you've got the mindset of, of development and growth and you genuinely see, you know, adversity or stress, let's say, as part of the process for getting better. And again, I don't want to be overly, overly positive, but what that does, it changes the way you experience the, the ice, the, 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 the situation, because you're utilizing it as a reason to improve, to get better. Um, really interesting uh, study. There was a, I mentioned it in the book, there was a, a lady from Stanford. When she was at Yale, a lady called Alia Crum, they did this test called the milkshake test. And they had this, this control group of students came in and they gave them a milkshake, high calorific, 620 calories, high fat, high sugar. Um, and then they brought them back in a week later and they gave them a low calorific milkshake. So it's quite a famous study, the milkshake study. So 300 calories. And then they monitored their physiology. And what they, there's something called the ghrelin, so this, um, the, the hunger hormone. Hunger hormone, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what they found was when they had the, the, um, the high calorific milkshake, the ghrelin dropped threefold. So literally their, their body was saying, I'm satisfied. I don't need to eat anymore. What's interesting with the test is it was the same milkshake both weeks. So the milkshake was the same, right? But their response, because they thought this was what was happening, their, their whole nervous system, their belief system was this was high calories. It affected their hormones. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. You're going, interesting. that's just really fascinating, interesting. right? Yeah. So now, now you're into sort of like placebo, you know, and that that world, you know. But, but you know, it doesn't mean to say if I eat a, you know, a cheeseburger and fries and I go, it's health food, doesn't mean it is, but... But there's something about how we code things, how we see things. So if I take the, the challenge, the demand of the, the ice bath or the external circumstances and go, this is designed to make me get better. I'm utilizing this to facilitate my development. If I, if I just choose that to be the case, it seems to affect the way we feel in those circumstances. So the, the girl in the ice bath is meditating. She's chilled out. She's relaxing. She's accepted the, the adventure, right? So, you know, she, she has a reason for being in there. And she's treating it as something that's very useful. Now, that takes adapting. You're not going to jump in the first time and respond like that. It takes some adaptation, right? you know. So once you get past that that phase of, of, of accepting the fact that we have to grow and develop, 
Well, then you enter the P of adapt, A-D-A-P. The P is persist, persist, persist. So self-reward yourself, recognize that you're, you know, that you are getting value from the from, from being in that situation. And then the last part of adapt is I, call, I put it down as tune in, tune up. And that just means you genuinely play a sort of win-learn change game. If what I'm using is if what I'm doing isn't working, then you have to change. You can't just persist. You need to adjust and be aware of what's happening, the, the result of your behaviors. So I think when you pull those five elements together, yeah, can you, you just go through them just uh, in yeah, order so, for, so yeah, the, so, the listeners? Yeah, so you accept the adventure, yeah, direct your seeking system, adopt the new and improved. So that's when you 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 kind of learn new things. Um, persist, 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 and then tune in and tune up. And that's where you maintain your sort of lifelong development, if you like, or constant ever-ending improvement, that sort of mindset. Mm, you know, if you I apply like those, yeah, you apply those to, you know, the ice path's a metaphor for anything demanding. I mean, the world we're living in right now, I'll tell you right now, I mean, maybe it's always demanding, but the last few years have been particularly interesting. You know, it's not often that you have a situation where, what's that, every time I go to a conference, someone's talking about the VUCA world. Right, the VUCA world, I've never heard of it until April 2020, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It's not often that all four things happen at the same time. Mm. And it's un- almost unheard of where all four things happen at the same time for everybody you know. I mean, my, April 2020, we were all going, what? What's happening? To, what, what do you think? No one knew what was going to happen. The, mm. Everyone was experiencing that. So taking that as, as read, that life is like that sometimes. If you, if you utilize that, and I use the ice, the ice as a, a metaphor for that, a demanding set of circumstances, how I navigate through that is I have to find a way to adapt. It's the only way through that. If I can adapt, I don't have to endure. And that's the process that I put in the book around how to tap potential. Yeah, I like that, adapt rather than endure. Um, let's just, while we're on ice baths, because I know this is interesting for many listeners, yeah. many of you listening do practice and use ice baths on a regular mm. regular occurrence. Um, for some people, though, they they do definitely feel that they resist the cold, particularly people with circulation problems. And I know yeah, this yeah. is something you've utilised mm. a lot uh, in your work. So let's start with a, a beginner person who wants yeah. to start. Do you start them with something like a cold shower? I mean, that that's yeah. actually can be almost more difficult, right? Because it's not full immersion. You kind of yeah. feel like you're escaping the trickles. Um, yeah, yeah. What would you do? And what breathwork practices do you utilize? Do you use something like Wim Hof breathing or other forms of breathing to actually warm mm. up for that that cold exposure? Yeah, yeah, I do. And and look, I, I you know I came at this you know two and a half three years ago. As an, as an enthusiast, as a, as a participant, you know, I was looking for anything, any strategy, any hack, any recovery process that's going, was going to help me to complete this, this Ironman triathlon that I, I took on, you know, as, as a, I was like the lab rat. I wanted to go and f- take something on, but I had no idea how I was going to do it. I had no references. I had no belief that it was possible. So I had to start from scratch. Um, and, and coincidentally, at that time, I was I was introduced to to Wim Hof. I, I heard about Wim Hof, and look, Wim Hof's an in, interesting character, right? I mean, he, he, you know, he's a bit marmite for some people, um, but when you look at the content of what he talks to, and the fact you put those two things together—the breathwork process, the sort of tumo breathing, um, and and the ice or the cold, utilizing cold. Um, when you look at the data, because that's what I did, I thought, okay. I take what he's saying. I like the sound of it. Then I go and look at the research. I go and look at the neuroscience behind it. There's a professor at Portsmouth who talks about the cold. You've got Professor you know, Andrew Huberman over at Stanford who really goes into the detail of these things. And I was curious to go, what does the, the, the science say? Incontrovertible. Can't argue with the data, right? So, okay, well, I, therefore, I have to, this could be an ad for me. It could give me a few percent. So, and I, and I took it on. I took, I haven't missed a day. I mean, quite literally, including this morning, First thing that I do in my morning ritual is four rounds of the, the Wim Hof. Let's call it Wim Hof breathing because it, I'll give it to him because he's the one that made it accessible. And he's got a great app. And if you go and it doesn't cost anything and you, and you can click on it and he will, he will take you through it every day and, he, and it's, 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 it's entertaining. Enough. Do you do it? I'm just curious. Do you do it um, lying down? Do you do it sitting up? How do I, you do it? I go out. I tend to go outside sitting up, garden furniture with a bit of. You know, the, oh, so you're the, getting well in winter, certainly you're getting cold exposure there while you're doing it. As well. Yeah, I'll still do it outside. Yeah, I mean, if it's, yeah. even if it's raining, I get you know, like a, it's a parasol out there, I'll sit underneath it. And 
you know, there's a, there's a number of reasons for that, which maybe we'll come back to about lights, getting light first thing in the morning mm. within an hour of waking up. So that's, I, I didn't know what that was about, but I've since learned it's a useful thing for the circadian rhythms. So so I do that every morning and then, I, then I'll have a cold shower every morning. Haven't missed it for probably two and a half, three years. I mean, it's just it's just a discipline. It's the thing that I I do because, and I, I will get into your, your question about how do, you grad, how do you graduate towards doing it? But I do it because the data suggests that the dopamine release from a cold shower um, creates what's called a long arc. So, I, and, and you, you look at dopamine, there's a, it's a great book on dopamine, um, which starts to look at, well, how much dopamine comes from different things. So they even talk about things like cocaine gives you a 10x in, in, you know, in, increase. What's in the dopamine. name of the book? Is, is it Dopamine Nation? Something like that? Oh, yeah, like yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I um, think, yeah. But, but but Professor Hoopman talks about this. He gives, he's got a podcast just on dopamine, and he'll talk about cocaine ten times up. You know, coffee something like three or four times, nicotine a couple of times, chocolate. There's things that spike our dopamine. Cold shower is not that different to cocaine in terms of the dopamine release because of the adrenaline. Because it's like <sighs> takes your breath away. You get a rush of adrenaline. Same with the breath work. When you do the breath work protocol at the end of the breath work. Trips it trips adrenaline because you you know you held your breath for two or three minutes, which is mind mind blowing. But the but the adrenaline gets turned into dopamine. But it's a long arc. Whereas cocaine will take you up and then it'll bring you down as quickly. And then you've got to find a way to get back to the base level, like in minutes. A cold shower will last for two or three hours. It's mm. a slow drop drop out of dopamine. And I just thought, well, I it's like, a bit I like need exercise. I exactly the same. Mm. I need that dopamine for the day. You know, I, I got things to do. And if, if if it means me taking 20 minutes through the breathing and five minutes for a cold shower, and I can just rely on the fact I got dopamine for the next three or four hours, that's a good return on investment. So how do you get into the, how do you get into the, the cold? I, I use cold showers. I think cold showers are, I think they're more challenging, frankly, because the water's moving the whole time. And if you're on the colder setting, it's quite intense. But you you you, you manipulate your environment to make it work. So I got this, I got the sound system going, I got music on, right? I'm making it a little easier to create some energy when I when I'm gonna throw the cold shower on for five. And five minutes is just is a bit exaggerated because you only need two. The, 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 data's, the data is in, the optimum amount of cold is a two-minute cold shower. You get all the returns on your on the boosted immune system, the brown fat cells, burning white fat cells, all the data it would appear that I've read um, is around two minutes. But you wouldn't start there. You know, make it easy for yourself. Normal shower, and in the middle of a normal shower, put in 15 seconds of cold. <sighs> Take it 15 seconds, back the hot. Right, okay, so it. now let's so so let's pause there, right? So when yeah, you're doing this, because yeah. Hoopman talks about climbing walls, which I think is a really good analogy, right? So you yeah. you basically say to yourself, well, how many walls have I climbed, right? And every time you have to do that, because there's a point as you did that kind of expression there where you're like, <gasps> okay, yeah. and, and now I'm in the cold, and then yeah. you sort of relax into it, and then you're yeah. okay with it. And then it's going to come and you climb another wall, right? So maybe the first day, first few days, you're climbing one wall and then you've got to go another one. Or if you do what you were suggesting there, you're starting on warm, you do cold, then maybe you're back to warm, then you go to cold again, right? You can cycle off and get people cycling. Yeah. What are you doing with your breath at that point? Because I know you've done this. You've pre-primed yourself, if you like, with a dopamine release from Wim Hof. Are you elongating the breath so that you can just like lean in as we were talking about? Or what are you doing there? Honestly, and... I, I'm, I'm at a stage now where I don't even I don't even think about you it. You don't think about it. Okay. Within, 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 within 15 seconds of it being cold, you would you adapt. I mean, the more you do it, you, you adapt quicker and quicker and quicker. So within about 15, 20 seconds, you, there's no breath work to be done. It's manageable. Initially, initially, I would say initially take some, you know, follow the deep breath process. <sighs> It'll be fast initially because it's cold, right? And it should <laughs> be. And I, by the way, I'd also say it's always cold at the beginning. I, I, yeah, so even cool. after three years, it is. I go, <laughs> so I go I've found the, the same. Cold. It's never not cold. It's the, same. <laughs> it's the same reaction, you know. But it's like it's like jumping in a cold pool or jumping into the sea, right? We've all done that, and it's cold. What do you say within about 30, 40 seconds? And so, what's it like in there? You go, it's okay once you get in, right? We 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 all know yeah, that phrase. Exactly. We all, we all know we're going to adapt. But if you do it, and I guess this is the point, it, um, if you do it willfully, if you do it with a point, with a purpose, it completely transforms the experience. Like, for example, we had our boiler, went, our boiler went down not long ago, so there was no hot water. So it was either a cold shower or nothing. That was a bit miserable. That was like, oh, God. So that you had to kind of psych yourself up for that one because you didn't have a choice. 
right? Mm-hmm. When you're choosing to do it, because yeah, you know, it's funny ma- how that makes it easier. Yeah, yeah, there's mileage in this. There's 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 data that's good for the immune system. It's good for burning fat cells. When you rationalize the the, the value in it, then you go right. Now I'm doing this on purpose. You know, I, I, the, the the breathing. I would just say, as soon as your breathing equalizes, which is which is what they say, once your breathing equalizes, you've kind of done the work. Right. So if you want to develop resilience, that's what you're developing by stepping in, equalizing the breathing until you find yourself breathing normally. Well, now you've adjusted, you've adapted. You can stay in there a bit longer if you want to burn more fat because, you know, these brown, this brown adipose tissue that burns, that burns the white fat cells. You know, they were staying about a five minute cold shower is like doing a 20 minute run. I mean, you can get a good return on burning fat. And I, I, also, I thought, well, I was training for the triathlon. I thought, well, if, I, if I'm burning fat just in the shower, I mean, I'm, I'm taking that. That's like an easy win, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you always do your breath work first or do you ever just wake up, you're in a rush and you dive into a cold shower to get yeah. going for the day? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, the cold shower is an absolute given because I just know that the, 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 I know the value of it and I know I always come out of it going, right, and I'm good for a couple of hours. Um, it's, not, it's not usual I won't get up and do breath work first. That's almost like my entry point to the day. And, and 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 I'm I'm look I'm genuinely when when we were in the depths of the whole lockdown dynamic, you know, for someone that flies around the world speaking at conferences, that evaporated overnight, right? So March 2020, I had a whole 12 month pipeline that just disappeared, and I wasn't the only one. Now that's that I know people during the lockdown they made a fortune. There were some sectors that did this. Mine wasn't one of those. So. You know, I was I had my own struggles with that psychologically about my identity, who I was, what I did for a living that just suddenly disappeared with no point in the future where I could see it coming back. So, you know, that took a bit of dealing with. Right. And, you know, we are their own struggles to some extent, some more than others. But for me, I mean, genuinely, that 20 minutes started a day where I'd wake up and think about the day and go, OK, before I try, before I even think about what the next move is outside 20 minutes four rounds of the the breathwork process and I, it was just like without exception i'd finish it and everything would feel 20 percent easier mm-hmm. life just felt 20 and, and i talk Amazing, about it a lot i talk about it a lot when i you know when i'm working with audiences and i, I often say look i feel a little uncomfortable talking about breathing and i tell you for why because look you've all done your ten thousand hours you've got your breathing down i understand you think that so it's to, to, for me to get you breathing as a it's a quite a weird thing to be doing, but I got to tell you, you know, my own experience of this is it's dramatic. The return I've talked with groups of surgeons who do this, right? Who start their day with twenty minutes of this breathwork protocol because they know it equalizes them, it, it resets the nervous system. They get a get they get the dopamine, but it flushes out cortisol, right? And I've looked at the data and it, and it stacks up. You know, I've talked to sports people, I've talked to so many people who use this technique. But I, th- I thought, well, even if I'm feeling really down, like really stressed or whatever the, you know, whether you feel anxious, whatever the thing is, if you can find a way to, to work this model out and do 20 minutes of this thing that takes no money, no skill, a little bit of focus, a little bit of practice every day, seven days a week. Now, maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but for me, it's, it's necessity. If it's three or four days a week, everyone I've spoken to that's done that, and it's not many because... Everyone agrees, yeah, it makes sense. To, to, to get you have to do anything as a habit takes doing, right? Everyone that I've spoken to that makes it part of their life, without exception, when I talk to them after, it's like, I can't believe the difference it's made to how I genuinely feel about life. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll never stop. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's not an effort to me now. It's, it's like meditation. It's like, it's like... Yeah, I was, that was going to be my next question, actually, because I know yeah. meditation has a place for you. Obviously, exercise does. Um, when have you found, have you found there's a point in your day? Because you're busy, you're a speaker, you're mm. an author, you know, you've yeah. got a lot going on and you're making mm. time for these things, which is yeah. music to my ears, because that's what I say to everyone is optimizing your health is the foundation of high performance. But yeah. when do you meditate? So and meditation what form do you with- practice? Yeah, thanks for that. Well, I tell you, it was an interest with meditation because before I started looking into, again, don't forget, I was trying to find anything to give me a little edge because I took on this challenge and I didn't know what to do, how to do it. So I started looking at everything and then I came across meditation. I always felt a bit, again, uncomfortable talking about meditation. It's like a bit West Coast, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it's a bit, you know, I haven't got time to sit there and just kind of go on and, and I, that's not my thing. So I looked at different forms of meditation. And I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not anti any version, whatever works for you, right? But when I saw the data that says when you get into a mindfulness practice, 
And I did, a, I put a chapter in, in, in the book around this, where I talk about, um, I call it under the radar, and I talk about mindfulness and meditation. And I said, initially, I felt a bit uncomfortable with these labels. But when I looked at the data, and it says that when you meditate, when you're mindful, um, you know, the, this gyrification happens, you build centers of the brain, which cause you to recruit the focused circuits, so that when you go into your day, you're, you're less distractible. You, know, you, you won't get distracted like you used to. I thought, okay, that's interesting. So now it's not about the 15 minutes. It's not about the de-stressing, because I, I figured I wasn't that stressed. I mean, I probably was, but I didn't do it for that. I didn't do it to calm down. When I read that by doing this thing 15 minutes a day, it causes the circuits of the brain to get good at focus, dialing into things, right? I thought, that, that, I, that, I, I like the sound of great article by a guy called Justin Rosenstein I read in The Guardian. Uh, and this guy, he was talking about how he and other senior programmers at Google, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, were disconnecting from the very platforms they designed to be so addictive. Right, and he was saying that he even had to had to adjust his operating system and his computer to stop him getting into Snapchat, which he classified as a Class A drug. Right, and he said, um, and by the way, he said that the like button. He said, he said, I call, I, I, I classify the like button as pseudo bright dings of pseudo pleasure, and he should know because he designed the like button. It was his. He called it the awesome button initially. Right, and he said. Um, he said, he said, he said, on average, right now, he said, the, on average, the average use of, of social media is three hours a day. Right? He said, 2,600 times a day, people are tapping and swiping their phone. Now, that's not you and I, right? But the others, the others are doing three hours a day in social media. And he says, he said, you have, he said, our, our, our attention is a prized commodity. Everyone wants a bit of it. He said, so how do you protect your attention? Right? How do you stay focused in a, in a world of noise? And he says, you have to do a few things. One, you've got to become able to not be distracted by these sort of impulses, these impulse to check your phone, to check your text, you know, to check Instagram, to go and snack when you're not even hungry. So you have to have some discipline around that. I thought, well, that makes sense. And then also, but it led me into, you also have to recruit these neural circuits that, that create the ability to focus. Now, I went back to meditation. Apparently, that's what they do. So 15 minutes a day is an investment to me in the whole day. It's like part of my performance strategy. It's not it's not stress management, right? No, so I, I think it gives you that laser. What I've noticed, it gives you a right and left brain. So it yeah. strengthens, strengthens the corpus callosum, right? That connects mm. the right and left. So you think better, smarter. Okay. And also uh, it just gives you that laser focus. You can, yeah. and full presence to any moment, right? You can block out distractions. I never knew that. But so once I realized that, that, that gives you leverage to go, oh, that's worth doing. Yeah, I'm not exactly. sitting there. I'm not sitting there quietly for 15 minutes to calm down. I mean, it gives you that as well. But I like that. I like that. I was more in intrigued by what it was developing in my ability to be focused, so I could go and step into a call like this. I could go and get into some deep work and design a program without being distracted. I mean, that's the return on what meditation yeah. is. So, so I plug in. I, you know, I plug in two. I got my 20 minutes at the beginning of the day. That's the breathing. That's like that's a form of meditation to me because it is very mindful. Yeah. And then I'll plug in one other session a day. And normally I'll do it either late morning or just at just the beginning of the afternoon. Um, and I and I I picked up on um how do you stop? Can I ask you very quickly? Mm. How do you stop other things getting in the way? Because the biggest mm. challenge for me, and I think that's partly because I've got three kids, mm. uh, it's busy, life's busy is I yeah. tend to try and front load this stuff in the morning very early, like mm. a very, very early riser, even exercise, meditation, breath. It's all done before the school run. Right. Purely because as the day starts to run away, yeah. uh, I feel like I sometimes will be compliant, but not always. So how yeah. do you, is it is it scheduled for you at a certain time? How yeah. do you avoid something else taking its place when the day's yeah. still going? Yeah, good point. So I, I well, there's two things. First of all, um, I've read some really interesting data again by, uh, there's a process called LIWC LUC, um, Linguistic Inventory Word Camp. It's this piece of software where they did this study to find out what was the general mood during the course of a day? What's the circadian rhythm for most people? Now, you get your night owls, you get your early morning people, but 80% of people fit into this middle category. And what they did, they took 500 million tweets, right, spread over a number of years, six and a half years, um, and they looked at the language in the tweet and the time of day it was posted. And from looking at the language used, they could predict the mood people were experiencing during the day. 
And what they found, this is big data, right? So there's exceptions to the rule, but the big data suggests we get this peak in the morning, which goes from like, you know, it's a seven a.m. when you get up and you get this cortisol pulse that gets you out of bed, agitated to go and do something, rises to about 11, and it starts to drop at 11. You get this trough in the middle of the afternoon, and then it, you recover about four o'clock. So it's like you get dopamine at the beginning of the day, some adrenaline. You then get a, this sort of lull in the afternoon, and then you get this four o'clock, you get some serotonin, this feeling of completion, and you, and you get this recovery phase. I thought that's interesting, and I won't go into all the data, but they then looked at some some earnings calls, like this proper hard business CFO type calls, quarterly calls to investors and analysts in the press, and and they transcribed twenty six hundred earnings calls, all the words used, and this came out of Harvard, and they said that the data suggests that the calls in the afternoon were more irritable, more combative, more negative, and they looked at the same data and said, yeah, it's exactly the same process: peak, trough, recover. So I thought, well, if that's true, and intuitively, we kind of know we get this little bit of a lull in the early afternoon. I thought, well, surely you can manipulate that. I want to manipulate the data. What can I do to accentuate the peak? So like you, I have a morning routine, which amps up the peak, get the hard work done. And they say, do the the tough work in the morning, because that's when you're probably at your best. In the afternoon, they were saying, do your admin for a couple of hours. So there's no, there's no loss, because you've got a bit of a lull anyway. And then in your evening, do your creative work. Well, I thought, well, in the afternoon, what you've got to do is you've got to interrupt the pattern. So I will plug something in at around, you know, one o'clock, half one. And that could be 15 minutes of anything. It could be breath work. It could be a bit of exercise, right? It could be some sort of active recovery. So you just kind of spike yourself back up. So you've got a little more energy to push through the afternoon. It kind of makes sense. So, you know, I, I tend to use um, my meditation is the yoga nidra. So yoga nidra even yoga nidra, I mean, it, it still sounds a bit meditative. Um, I think Andrew Huberman talks it deep relaxation, non-sleep, deep relaxation Yeah, techniques. NSDR. Yes. So, he says it's that. essential. 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes of NSDR is an essential part of optimizing your health and circadian rhythm. Yeah. So because of that, I go, well, he knows. Why, why would I want to argue with that? So I plug that in early afternoon, 15 to 20 minutes, yoga nidra, which is just like body scanning, but it's sort of a very mindfulness process, mindful process. Um, and I always come out of it feeling, you know, restored. It's like a restorative thing. It's not just, you know, taking breaks is critical, but it's not just taking a break, right? It's doing something restorative. So you get, you put something back into your system, ready, ready to go again. And that's the model that I was looking at around recovery called oscillation, right? Where you, you know, you stress, you recover, you stress, you recover, you stress, you recover. So I've got stress points during the day. I have no problem with stress. Stress ain't going to take you down. The lack of recovery takes you down. Right. So if you're going to put stress into your life and you can't not, frankly, really, especially if you're pushing yourself. Right. As long as you build in these little 15 minute slots. So when you say, how do I make sure they don't get um, usurped by other things? I just fundamentally believe they're part of my high performance. Strategy. It, yeah. It's yeah, part exactly. of the stress, part of the strategy. It's not it's not getting over something. The fundamental high performance strategy involves building in some active recovery. And it could be going for a walk, you know, taking a walk up the woods for 20 minutes. That could be it. You know, anything that's restorative and, you know, you're changing your, para, your, your, your perspective and your, there's, you know, your cognitive load is reduced. So the phone's switched off. You're not getting, you know, you're not getting tripped into things that just take, you know, cognitive ability. You want to just de decompress for those 15, 20 minutes, and but treat it like a fundamental part of your performance strategy. Mm. That's what I do. I agree. I agree. And I think also it's um, important as well, like we were talking there, like you've got to recover as much as you work, right? Is mm. we know the brain works in those kind of a bit like it does in sleep in these 90-minute cycles, right? So Ultra, you've got to recover. Rhythms? Ultradian rhythms, exactly. Right. Well, and, same, and, same with deep yeah. work. You know, I'll, I'll use those ultradian rhythms as, as um, focus sprints. So, that's you know, what I do as well. Yeah, I could do at yeah. least I, without a shadow of a doubt. The morning when I have a focus sprint, typically after I've done the, my little routine to kick the day off, I'll go right straight in for ninety minutes on something that I absolutely know is priority for the day, right? And that'll be you know, and and I'll I'll target it. I'll, I don't literally time it, but it'll be sixty to ninety minutes. I'll know exactly what the outcome is. It's a lot of clarity around that piece of work, and nothing gets in the way. The phones off, doors locked. That that's like a you know. I want a cocoon of focus because I know it's difficult. And then I'll probably have one in the afternoon. And that could be a little later in the day. It could be writing, creating something. So I know after four o'clock, a bit of serotonin in your system, you're feeling like you're restoring. So that's like my creative space. I'll have 90 minute block again when I'm putting together a program, designing my slide deck or something that, again, I don't want to be interrupted. I want to get in flow. I want to get into that zone 
where you get all these brain chemicals that all start to merge. You get endorphins, you get dopamine, you get adrenaline, you get anandamide for like pattern recognition. You get serotonin. So you feel comfortable in the, in the chair that you're in. You're not trying to be somewhere else. You know, when you get into that sort of flow state, which, you know, we all know it happens. It's, it's a thing, but you've got, you've got to provoke it. You know, and I did a whole section of the book around flow, around how do you cause yourself to be in a flow state? You know, and then if you apply that state of mind to the challenging work, I don't know, again, it's, you've got to judge by results, but it it just feels, you. Feel, it's almost like you, the flow is like when you're in that, you feel and perform at your best. That's, that's what's happening. And, and you don't need to be in flow all day. In fact, you'd be exhausted if you were, but you need a couple of blocks, you know, and I, I try and I'm quite disciplined about that. Mm. Yeah, so you can work with intensity. That's the thing I find. And you can get ahead a lot quicker. But as you say, it's very kind of demanding on the brain. And so you do need really good recovery. There's a great cycle. When I talked about flow earlier on, this, um, there's a, a cycle, the flow cycle. And I, I referenced this in the book as well. I don't know if you saw it. There was um, a film came out a year or so ago about the Beatles. And there were these three three-hour programs called Get Back. It came out on Disney+. Plus fascinating if you if you like the beatles or into music but basically it's that you you're with them while they're trying to write a, an album and they ended up doing that live concert on top of their offices in savile row which is quite a famous concert and the whole program the whole three nine hours worth is all about that and they had to start from scratch they had no material they're trying to write an album they weren't really getting on it was the end of their end of their, their term with the beatles but the whole program is about you watch it and you'll see them go through this cycle this, this flow cycle and the flow cycle starts with struggle. So when you're trying to do this deep work, initially, um, writing the book was this for me. I mean, I found the book to be exhausting and traumatic in some regards, but I worked out that this flow cycle was quite predictable. So when I'd start a chapter, I knew I'd, I'd be in pain for a bit. I knew when I'd start it, I'd be wrestling, struggling, trying to get the ideas together, bringing in the relevant information. But there came a point during the flow, during the, the struggle cycle, once you get into that struggle cycle, you then pause and you do the next phase is called the release cycle. The release cycle is when you just stop for a minute, maybe go for a walk for 20 minutes or you jump on the bike or, you know, you do something that's like low cognitive effort. And you know, we've all had that experience where, you know, you kind of out, you're out on a run and you kind of go, oh, that's a good, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, that, that's the, and something comes to you out of nowhere or you wake up in the morning and go, oh, that, that's, the, that's, that's the way I've got to address that situation, right? Because you have this period of release. So it goes struggle, and then you go into this building a release phase, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Then you get into this flow state. And at the end of flow, you have to recover. So it's struggle, re release, flow, recover. It's because flow is stress. I mean, it's great stress, but it's, it, it takes it out of you, right? Just like you do a, you do a speech or do something that's intense, and you come out the other side. Once the adrenaline's worn off, you're like wiped out. And you were having a great time. You weren't going for a run. It, it shouldn't be physically demanding. But if you if you you know if you tap into the flow, you, you know you have to build. Not have to, but the model would suggest plug in 15, 20 minutes recovery. So to me, that is again yoga nidra, going for a walk, sitting outside, having a bit of a, just a bit of a chill, something before you then go again. You know, it's restorative. Yeah, and it's, it just makes it easier when you come back to it, doesn't it? It all feels kind of fresh, yeah. and you're more open and, to the ideas. And also because you you've probably been extremely productive, so that also is quite refreshing. Yes, exactly, because it's re re rewarding. Yeah. yeah. And I know you go into um, all of the stuff around flow and how to achieve it in the book. Um, mm, yeah, it's worth, a deep, worth a deep dive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you say then, just kind of before we close, if people mm -hmm. are, are listening and they feel motivated and they're thinking, right, actually, you know, what, what you're saying here is making so much sense. I really do need to nail my recovery. I really need to build in these routines and they've got a big goal you know we're recording this at the end of 2022 november yeah. people are looking ahead now to 2023 um yeah. what what are what is critical to them they might be like you mm. they might have a goal like a, an iron man that they've mm. never done before and they can't yeah. visualize themselves yeah we didn't talk about visualization and the importance of it sure. but how do you go from just having an idea in your head to getting yourself to accept it and putting yeah. in place that process to finally manifesting and achieving what you wanted okay i mean there's, okay so again there's a guy i was i was reading up about a guy called john hagel he worked for deloitte he he's he one of the co-founders of something called the center for the edge um and they did a, a global study of high-performing teams innovative teams and they found there was something consistent about these teams one thing they found was the way they set goals 
right? And that may sound obvious, but they found that the, the goals that recruit the most drive, the most motivation are, the, are the, the challenging goals, the big goals, right? But how challenging is challenging? And it's almost like you want a goal that, um, that stretches you. It's like a stretch, but you don't want to snap, right? You, you want something that, that kind of doesn't keep you up at night, but gets you up in the morning. So first thing is, what is your goal? What is the goal like? Now, the one I picked was ridiculous, and, and it was too big initially. So I was almost going against the model. Right? But, but because I had a really big reason to do it, that kept me going. It kind of kept me focused. I, I, was, I was doing it willfully. No one gave me the goal. Right. So because you choose it, that, that has another element of keeps you driven, keeps you keeps you committed. Um, but like once you once you set the right goal and the goal is exciting and you're moving it to, to the new year, you know, how do you, how do you maintain that that level of you know, consistency then that, that keeps you focused? And I, I think I think that's the, the, the strategy is you have to find a way to build the habits in that are going to support you. I mean, you know, January the first is a good example. You know, everyone's everyone's in the gym in January. You know, you go go to the gym in mid-March, there's no one there. I mean, something, what happened? I mean, they meant well, but what? Did, but they didn't create the patterns, the, the habits of behavior. And I talk a bit about habits in the book, habit stacking, um, where I go, you know, once you set the, the overriding goal, this sort of mission-critical 12-month goal, you've got to then break it down to daily goals. Uh, like the daily goals are things that you need to do four or five times a week. That's where you focus. You don't just focus on the big target. You break it down to things that are bite-sized that you can go and take care of. Um, and how do you turn the, you know, the, the behaviors into habits? Habit stacking to me is you've got to get three things aligned. One, you've got to get logic. It's got to be logical, the thing you want to do more of. You've got to get emotion involved. But then you also got to get the brain chemistry involved. So logic. So for example, how can you re reduce friction? So if, let's say, for example, it keeps it simple. It's some sort of physical challenge, right? Exercise, getting healthy. You go, well, okay, I want, I want to exercise, you know, five times a week. I, and I'm, I mean well, and I get into fits and starts. I do it for a bit, then I stop. But I want it to become a pattern, a habit. Or it could be the breath work or the cold shower. Well, what's going to what can you do to make the environment easier for you to bump into it? What friction can you take away? So, for example, I got, you know, my bike set up in my in the lounge, which is not very popular. But it's on the turbo train in the lounge because I know if it's there, I will train on it every day. If it's up in the garage and I've got to bring it in, put on the turbo trainer, get covered in oil, do the session, dismantle it, put it back in the garage, that's friction, mm. right? So I want to set up my environment that makes it logical that I can do this thing regularly. So that's the first thing I'd say. Think of the behavior that's going to move you towards the goal. What can you logically do to make it easier to do that thing? Second thing, you know, emotion. So have at least a conversation with yourself. What's the sort of pain-pleasure balance? What's the consequence of not doing this thing that I keep saying is important to me? What does that look like as I go ahead in time to talk about visualization? So, you know, what's the negative visualization if I don't do this thing? Where, where am I going to end up if I don't make this a habit? And also, where's the benefit if I do? So what's the pleasure? What's the return if I make this normal for me? So that's, that's emotion. And then the brain chemical bit, it's structuring the habit in a way where you put it into bite-sized chunks. So in, in this sort of habit stack, and I go, let's say you took a, most people say it takes 21 days to form a habit. I don't know. Let's not argue about the days, but let's say it's 21 days. Rather than go, I'm going to train for 21 days and make it a habit, you've got to build in some, you've got to build some flexibility into that model. Because for most people within 10 days, they've missed three and they go, ah, oh, forget it. And they're so disappointing, they just dispatch, right? So I go, rather than that, put it into like seven, three-day blocks, so for the next three days, I'm going to do these two or three things that I keep talking about, for just for three days. And then after the three days, you assess, did I? Yes, I did. Although that one I only did once, not three times. Okay, so you're building in failure. Okay, now let it go. Start again today for the next three days with the good intentions. After three days, assess, did you? No, I didn't. Yes, I did. Okay, fine. Start again for the next three days. Now, what will happen over these seven three-day chunks Either you will establish that one of those two or three behaviors wasn't that important to you. But what you also find is if you remind yourself after three days that it's okay not to do it, but now you're going to go back again for three, you get this renewed dopamine release. This anticipation mm -hmm. kicks in again. There's no disappointment because you factored it in. Right? You factored in being human. But then what happens over the 21 days is one or two or three of those things will stick mm -hmm. and will become a pattern of how you now do things. Because you develop a streak, right? You're exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And you can, there's so many apps you can use nowadays that you need that kind of motivation to kind of tick the boxes as you go along. But even if you've got an app, you know, an app where you're ticking the boxes for 21 days, I would still say allow yourself to block, to chunk it down to three day blocks. So that if after, you know, 15 days, you haven't done this one thing five times, 
you're not adding that up. Mm-hmm. It's too disappointing, right? You, yeah. you start questioning yourself. Just let it go and then start again for three days. And yeah, if, exactly. if it's important to you, 21 days later, that thing will be a pattern. Yeah, for sure. I love that. You make it sound so simple. You break it down. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> everything is... that I everything I talk about in the book is are things that I've struggled with and I've tested and I've, you know, I've wrestled with and gone, I'm only putting it in there. If I A, I think it's relevant, right? B, there's back, there's science to back it up. So it's not just my opinion. And C that I've tested and used and 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 found a way to go, yeah, I think that's doable. I think that's people can pick this up. When I say unashamedly superhuman. It's not in doubt to me that we are superhuman. Our system, our nervous system, everything about our mind-body connection is is remarkable. I mean, most of us never find that out. I mean, you know, but fundamentally it is. When you look at the data, it's quite incredible. So when I go, you know, unashamedly superhuman, superhuman is the sexy word, but the important word is unashamedly, right? Unashamedly superhuman. I'm 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 not going to question it. I'm not going to be embarrassed by it. I'm going to go and test it, challenge myself, and see what shows up. Right. And it's that I find is be the most the most motivating part of this this, this project is being unashamedly superhuman. And I'm even gotta say it out loud because that's ridiculous. Mm. Just say it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and it's an amazing feeling. And actually, I think everyone should take a read of this. You've you've brought together so many areas uh in in one book. You know, people have probably heard of things like habit stacking and flow states mm. from, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. as you say, the likes of and 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 breath work from the likes of Huberman and sure. Stephen Kotler and, and and James Clear. But you put it all under the umbrella and I just make it I think it's a brilliant book, makes it super easy for people. Um, it's out. Where where can people find it? It's on Amazon. Where else? Where, it's on Amazon. Book? I think it's in all places you buy books, and it's certainly on Amazon awesome. anywhere online. And um, yeah, any problems, come to me. Jim at where Jim can Steel. they connect with you, Jim? Yeah, yeah, Instagram for sure, Facebook, uh, Jim at jimsteel.com. Just send me an email. I'll, I'll, I'll reply. I'll reply. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks for asking me. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Mm-hmm.